Eight weeks ago, we began a series of lessons from the Gospel of John. And through the study of the Gospel of John, he has presented to us our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the many great works that he did. In fact, he continues to present Jesus as the Son of God interested in the souls of men. It's remarkable if a person takes just a little amount of time to look at the lives of those people whom Jesus touched. Many times these events seem to be just random acts. And even in the healings as we studied about of the nobleman's son last week, and we'll study about the man who was infirm this week, we realize these are not just random acts of benevolence, but they're a part of God's plan for the presentation of the truth. These were opportunities to be able to reach people. They were real people in real situations in life. There are going to be some of you over the next few weeks will find people who will be in critical condition in the hospital. They and their families may express some interest. Take advantage of that situation to help them. This is not just a random act. This is where you and I allow our faith to touch the lives of other people. And Jesus did that in showing God's grace to man. This morning we're going to take some time to look at this invalid who was at the pool of Bethesda and see how the Lord expressed to him God's benevolence. We're going to study the verse 16 verses of John chapter 5, so I encourage you to take your Bible, open it, and in fact I'd encourage you to make some notes yourself as we go through this important section of God's Word. We're going to look first of all in verses 1 through 5 at the crippled man. And then we're going to look at the compassion that Jesus showed him in verses 6 through 9. And then finally the controversy that erupted over the Lord's healing in verses 10 through 16. So let's begin now reading verses 1 through 5 together. After this, there was a feast of the Jews... And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is in Hebrew called Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water, and whoever stepped in it first, stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity thirty-eight years. Now, as you and I begin to explore this, we have to realize the, the timing. John is presenting to us a series of events that are taking place. If you'll remember, back in John chapter 3, Jesus talks with Nicodemus. In John chapter uh, 4, then you see Jesus leaving Jerusalem, going back to Galilee, but it said he must need go through Samaria. And so he met the woman at the well there in Samaria. You get to the latter part of chapter 4, and now he's at Cana, back in Galilee, And that's where he was when he healed the nobleman's son. 
Now he returns to Jerusalem for a feast. And John does not tell us at this point which feast it was. And all the other accounts of the feast, he tells us which one it was. But this one he doesn't. Perhaps it's not important to the, the message that he's trying to deliver. I personally believe it was the Passover, but that's just a matter of judgment there. But he's going back to Jerusalem, and when he does, he arrives at a location, and John is very vivid in his description. He tells us, first of all, that there was a pool by the sheep gate. The city of Jerusalem had a number of gates around it. They have changed over the years. Uh, The one that is very near the Sheep Gate today is known as Stephen's Gate. There is without that area or within that area another gate that is known as the Sheep Gate by which the animals were brought in to be slaughtered there on the Temple Mount. It was an area where there was a pool actually for them to wash them before they were taken in. But John tells us here that this is near the pool or near the Sheep Gate and that there is a pool there called in the Hebrew Bethesda. The word Beth means house. Bethesda means house of mercy. And I think if a person just simply took a little bit of time, he'd understand why this place was so important. Uh, you can visit the area today. It's very deep and lower than the average street today. In fact, you can walk down several set of steps to get to these pools. But you have to remember, Jerusalem has been built up over the years. There's actually a church that is located there named St. Anne. And every time we go to Jerusalem, we visit the pool of Bethesda. And then there are five porches or porticos there. There actually was two pools, and there was a wall all the way around them, and there was a, a porched area, a covered area. And in between the two pools was one which made the fifth of the porches. And each of those people would be there laying around that edge of that pool. There's also a description of the people that are there. John tells us that this is a gathering place for people who really have no hope. They're in search of mercy. He tells us specifically that the sick people were sick that were blind lame and paralyzed. I don't know if you realize today how hopeless that kind of situation is, but a person who is blind today may have a a seeing-eye dog and will guide them, or they may have someone who will go with them. But in biblical times, many times you were just left by yourself. He tells us also that there were people who were lame. They couldn't walk. They were paralyzed. You know, today a person can have a motorized uh, wheelchair, some sort of motorized vehicle that gets them around if they can't walk. In biblical times, if you had the inability to walk, someone would have to carry you and put you somewhere. And I can imagine a person going and looking around this pool and among those five porticos, seeing a number of people who were sick and people who were blind and lame. They were looking for, looking for some just glimmer of hope. Can you imagine being in a place where everyone is, is just looking 
in spite of everything, looking for a little bit of hope. If you look at verses 3 and 4, the last part of verse 3 and the first part of verse 4, if you're looking at a more modern translation, you'll notice they're not in the text. If you have footnotes, you'll look at the footnote and you'll notice that it says that many of the uh, ancient manuscripts do not include the latter part of verse 3 and all of verse 4. Evidently, it must be because of a legend that had arisen that an angel would come down and stir the waters and then whoever got in first would be healed. The reason why that is likely the case is because of what you find in verse 7. If you'll notice, it says the waiting for the moving of the water for an angel went down at a certain time and stepped into the pool and stirred up the water and whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed whatever disease he had. But verse 7 is without doubt a part of the original. And the sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. While I'm coming down, another steps in before me. He evidently believed the legend that there would be a stirring of the water and because of that he wanted some sort of hope. And what's sad is this man had been in this circumstance for 38 years. It's hard for me to imagine a person suffering with a a disease, a malady that long. But some of you have. Some of you have experienced some kinds of diseases, some kinds of physical ailments, most or if not all of your life. And yet that's what we find this man with 38 years Now, I I want to point out to you, it's hard to imagine the desperation, the discouragement of having this illness and this disease and having it that long and having no hope whatsoever. I want you to see the picture of the place and of the people. And now as we move to see the Lord's compassion, begin with me at verse 6 and let's look through verse 9. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming down, another steps in before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, Take up your bed. Walk. And immediately the man was made well. And he took up his bed and he walked. And the day was the Sabbath. Jesus observed this man in his pitiful condition. It'd be hard not to have compassion on people who are suffering. I've got to tell you the first time that I visited the pool of Bethesda. Tim and I were walking in and we're standing there and there's a man leaning against the wall. He has one leg that is whole, but the other leg is down to about his knee. And the end of the stump, if you will, was bloody. Looked like the man had had a very, very difficult life. And he was asking for alms or begging there. And I'm going to tell you, it's hard not to have compassion on a man who's lost his leg. 
But when you see a man who looks like he's struggling so bad, you know, your heart goes out. And our tour guide told us the reason why his leg looked so bad was he took a pocket knife and cut it so people would feel more sorry for him and give him more money each time. It still didn't stop you from feeling sorry for a man who maybe even feels it necessary to do something like that. You go to a hospital and you see little children who've suffered an injury or some sort of illness. It makes your heart break. Jesus had compassion on something. And so he asked the man, Do you want to be made well? You consider the significance of who it is that asked that question and what it is that he asked. Do you want to be made well? What would you say? Yes. But obviously he didn't know Jesus or his power. He didn't understand who Jesus was nor understand the ability that he had to heal him. You know why? Because his response was not, yes, make me well. His response was to begin to complain, to say, I'm here by myself. I have no one to put me in the water. And second of all, before I get into the water, someone else gets in there before me. You can say, well, he he had a pretty good reason to want to complain. He's been this way for 38 years. His life has not been anything but misery. He must have believed in the legend of the angels stirring the water. He still wanted some help. And the Lord expressed compassion to him. But you see, Jesus performed the miracle of the healing of this man. He commanded him to take up his bed and to walk. And the man took up his bed and walked immediately. And for just a moment, I'd like for you to just take a sidebar with me for just a moment. You think about the people today who are so-called faith healers. I call them fake healers. They get on the television and they'll have someone come and they'll slap them on the head. They'll do something. They'll wave their hands and they'll talk about healing them. And sometimes if a person is not healed, they'll say, well, he just didn't have the faith to be healed. I'd suggest to you this man didn't have the faith either. He didn't even know who Jesus was. Why don't you look with me at verse 13 for just a moment. But the one who was healed did not know who it was For Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. He didn't know who Jesus was. How could he have faith in him? He didn't believe in the power of Jesus to start with because as Jesus said, do you want to be made well? He began to talk about the water rather than the healing. Oh, but Jesus made him well. In fact, he did so immediately. If you want to see a faith healer, you take them to one of the hospitals where our soldiers have returned from war and are no longer able to walk. 
no longer able to see. You work a miracle on them if you want to prove something. I think it's worth noting that he wanted to be healed, but rather than saying yes, he began to make excuses. Now that introduced a controversy. Look with me now at verses 10 through 16. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who he was. For Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Now the reason why there's a controversy is because this occurred on the Sabbath day. It would just seem to dawn on me that if there was any question to be asked, it would have been, who made you well? We want to be able to see this man and the power that he has and listen to him. But oh, that's not what they're thinking. There's a controversy with this. They make the statement, it's not lawful for you to carry your bed. I'm going to tell you as a child what I would come to my mind is, how in the world can he carry a mattress and box springs and a headboard and footboard? No, but that's, that's not the bed. The bed was a pallet a little rug or a woven piece that could be rolled out and unrolled. And a person would lie upon it rather than lying upon the area where the feet walked and the dirt might be. It was for them to have a place, a clean place to sit or lie. Take up your bed and walk. Was that wrong? We've got to look and see what the scriptures say, not what people say. Let me take you to the Old Testament, to three sections of scripture for just a moment, because this is valuable to understand, because if you're going to understand a controversy, you've got to understand who's right and who's wrong. And it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God, in it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your male servant nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, and on the seventh day, rested the seventh day, therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. That's from Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Pretty clear what he's talking about here. You don't work. But not only does he say you don't work, nobody else should work. Now when you go to the book of Jeremiah, to chapter 17, 
verses 21 through 23. Thus says the Lord, take heed to yourselves and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem, nor carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor any work, do any work, but hallow the Sabbath day as I commanded your fathers. But they did not obey nor incline their ear, but made their necks stiff that they might not hear or receive instruction. Old Jeremiah now is explaining these people are not honoring and respecting the Sabbath day. They're bearing burdens. Well, what does he mean by that? Bearing burdens. Well, Nehemiah will explain that in Nehemiah 13, verses 15 through 18. What he does is to look back what they had done and what they were doing and say, you better be careful, folks. In those days, I saw the people of Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. And I warned them about that day on which they were selling provisions. Men of Tyre dwelt there also who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles and said to them, What evil thing is this that you do? by which you profane the Sabbath day. Did not your fathers do thus? And did not God our bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Do you not observe what's going on here? They were treating the Sabbath day just like any other day. They were treading out the wine presses. They were loading their animals. They were bringing in sheaves. They were working. What this man was doing was not wrong. What he was doing was violating the traditions of the elders. There's a written record of the Jewish oral tradition. It's called the Mishnah. And uh, I read this past week the section on the Sabbath. And just to be very honest with you, it's ridiculous. That's the best way I can put it. Have you ever heard of straining at a gnat and swallowing a camel? That's exactly what they did. Here this man is told he can't take up his pallet, what he is lying upon, and carry it with him. What is he going to do? Leave it there? Matthew 15, verses 2 and 3. They told the disciples that they were transgressing transgressing the traditions of the elders because they didn't wash their hands when they ate bread. Jesus made it clear to them that they, because of their traditions, had transgressed the law of God in verse 3. See, there's a real problem when people begin to make laws for God and say God's not specific enough. Let me tell you, God says it just right every time. 
He is as specific as he wants to be and as generic as he wants to be. But they felt like God needed to have it spelled out for people. Neither this man nor Jesus sinned, but were only accused of it. Well, who are they going to blame? Well, they first try to blame the man for walking with the bed, and then he says, well, the man that healed me told me to take it up and walk. So then he passed it. He says, who is the man? He didn't know, but later he identified Jesus. Jesus withdrew. That is, he escaped through the crowd. There's a purpose for that. There's a reason behind that. The Jews wanted to kill Jesus because of this. Now, for just a few minutes, I want to take a little while to talk about some observations. When you read and study a passage such as this, you can say, oh, I feel bad for that man. But you've got to learn some things that, that help us. There are people who are suffering and feel hopeless today. Time likely causes some people, after they've gone through these things, to grasp for some unlikely alternatives. What do you mean by that? Here I am, I'm a Christian and I'm sick. I'm suffering. I'm going through a difficult time in life, spiritually, maybe even physically. To whom am I going to go for help? Do you remember King Saul? King Saul wanted a message from God. Samuel had died. He sought God by Urim and Thunim and they didn't answer. God didn't answer by the prophets. Verse 7 of 1 Samuel 28, Then Saul said to his servants, Find me a woman who's a medium, that I may go into her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, In fact, there's a woman who's a medium in Endor. What is Saul doing at a medium's house? He knows better. In fact, he commanded them all to be put out of the land. When I get to Isaiah chapter 8, verses 19 and 20, it was also going on during the days of Hezekiah. When Isaiah was writing, and when they say, Do you seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter? Should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there's no light in them. Listen carefully. You may find yourself in a situation that seems dire and hopeless and discouraging and you're despondent, but to whom are you going to go? You don't go to astrology. You don't go to the occult. You don't go to false religions. You don't go to the philosophies of men. You go to God and God alone has the power to resolve your difficulties. I like the way Peter put it in John 6, 68 and 69. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Number two, the miracles 
were a means to an end and not an end in themselves. Or you look at the event that occurred here. Not all the sick were healed. I can imagine in the pool of Bethesda with those five porticos around that there were a lot of sick folks there. I know there's more than one because the man who was healed said there's somebody gets in before me. There must have been a lot of people there. In fact, John's description indicates that there were. But there's only one man healed. In Luke chapter 4, verses 25 through 27, But I tell you, truly many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up in three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Was there a lot of people suffering there at that time? Yes, but he only went to one widow. Verse 27, And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Why did not the Lord heal everybody there at the pool of Bethesda? Good reason. He's not there just to work miracles. He's not there to relieve all human suffering. It's possible that the man was healed wasn't even saved. And you say, wow, really? He didn't know who Jesus was. He didn't understand a lot about it. But look at verse 14. Jesus says, sin no more. Literally, stop sinning. Quit sinning. Let something worse come upon you. Believe me, folks, there's some things worse than being lame. There's some things worse than being blind. There's some things worse than having cancer. There's some things worse than having a heart attack. You know what it is? Losing your eternal soul. Oh, Jesus was there to heal the sick, but there was much more to it than just that. You see, this provided the groundwork. It provided the opportunity to teach the truth on the Sabbath, which will begin with verse 17. And by the way, a part of this big problem is the controversy is over. They don't understand what the Sabbath was for. They look and they say, man was made for the Sabbath. Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God designed the Sabbath day for the benefit and for the good of man, not to be another burden to be born. God knew that man needed this rest and relaxation for a period of time of reflection. And it also proved him to be the Christ Remember in John or Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 5, and John the Baptist is in a period of difficulty himself and he sends word to ask about Jesus. Is he the Christ? Should he look for another? Verse 4 says, Go tell John the things which you see and hear, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. 
You see a man able to forgive sins, Matthew chapter 9, verse 6. Now let's take all this together. John chapter 3, or excuse me, John chapter 2, Jesus turns the water to wine at Cana of Galilee. Jesus heals a nobleman's son in John chapter 4. John chapter 5, Jesus heals a man who is infirm, tells him to rise and take up his bed and walk. You know what starts happening? You have layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of proofs that Jesus is a son of God. It's undeniable. You may be able to explain away one. You can't explain away two, three, four, five, six, seven, ten, twenty. Let me tell you, the gospel message is confrontational. You look at the controversy and don't shy away from it. Recognize it's there because the gospel has a way of confronting people in the situation where they are doing what they're doing, teaching what they're teaching. It confronted this man when Jesus said to him, sin no more. It confronted the false teachers who were saying, what you're doing is not lawful. The gospel can also confront you and me and the life that we're living now. And it can look at us and say, these are the mistakes that are in your life. But Jesus says, I can take your broken life and I can make it whole. I can mend you. If you're not a Christian this morning, you're lost. I know those words are pretty stark and stern, but that's reality. You're lost, but you don't have to be. Just like this man who was unable to walk, Jesus said, do you want to be made well? Jesus asked you, do you want to be made well? Don't complain and say, I don't have this, I don't have that. Listen to what he tells you to do and do it. He doesn't tell us to take up our bed and walk. What he tells us to do, believe that I am he. John 8, verse 24. That is, he's the Christ, the Son of God. He tells us to repent of our sins, Luke 13, verses 3 and 5. That's, I've got to change the way I think about my sins and what I do. He tells us to confess him, Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33. He tells us to be baptized. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20. Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. This morning, you don't want to be lost. You want to be healed spiritually. When we sing the invitation song, come forward to the front up here. We'll be glad to greet you. And then afterwards, we'll be glad to baptize you. Are you a Christian and are you looking at your life and saying, 
He's preaching to me. He's telling me exactly what my life is and I know that I've got to do something. We encourage you to respond to our Lord's invitation while together we stand inside.